We at Global Nomad Hacks are peace heroes. By playing Peace and Harmony program during this episode, we help create one million pockets of peace by dissolving stress and tension. To be your own peace hero and get your own copy, go to peaceandharmonydownload.com. Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. Today, I'm excited to introduce to you an old and dear friend, Brewer Stone. He's the partner at Influence Partners, and we're going to talk a little bit about how he ended up where he is and with what he's doing today as he grew up as a diplomat, which is quite unique. But for a lot of global nomads out there, we wonder what kind of impact it will have on our children and the things that they extract from that. So I thought it'd be a fun conversation to have with Brewer today and, and that hopefully you'll all enjoy it and uh, extract a little bit from that as well. So welcome, Brewer. Wonderful to be on with you, Heidi. It's such fun, and I love your podcast. Thank you so much. Instead of me telling your story, how about you give us a little bit of your background on sort of where you came from and how you ended up in a diplomat's family? You know, obviously, you were born into it, but I mean, sort of what was the path uh, that your family took? And we'll take it from there. Super excited. Thank you. Yeah, no. So I come from an, a family that, you know, kind of has way too uh, deep roots in New England, actually is responsible for the, the loss of the battle at, at Lexington. Uh, <laughs> but my father, at an early age, fell in love with the idea of becoming a foreign service officer. And uh, so and so right after the war, he and my mother were married in 47 and they moved to Europe. And by the time I came around, they were in Washington, D.C., then got assigned to England. And then what was by far and away the most formative part of all this for me and for I think our entire family, we were sent to India in the in the late 60s, which was an incredible time to be there. It was just super fun. There was a lot of, uh, you know, India was a, obviously an important emerging democracy. My father was on the front lines of trying to figure out what the Soviet Union was doing there. So it was sort of around the time of the, uh, you know, the whole third world movement and so on. It was also, but I was also young. I was five, five, six years old. And one of the coolest things was, you know, at that age, you move to a place like India and you don't think of the color of your skin or anything. You just think, hey, this is a fun kid. So my closest friends actually ended up being some, you know, local Indian children who were, you know, became very close friends. In fact, one of the most pointed experiences early for me was I made a dear friend of the son of the woman who was charged with taking care of me on a daily basis. And, you know, we lived in this big, beautiful house, you know, that the U.S. government had given to us. And and a diplomat's life, by the way, as I'm sure you know, is a lot like being an army brat. You're moved around every three, four years. But we ended up being in India for a total of seven years over two assignments. But this was in the first go round in the first three years we were there. And he was a wonderful guy, Joseph. We had a lot of fun. We used to dig holes in the backyard and we would camp out for, you know, for days uh, out, out there and got sick all kinds of ways and so on. But it was just, it really was profound to me. Uh, one of the early profound thoughts was that, you know, you can be friends with anybody as long as you learn thoughtfully how to engage with them and have fun with them. I love that. And I think it, you know, it is so important for us to remember that our kids aren't born with judgment and with blinders. That's something that we teach them. And it's really a gift to exactly. expose them to that quite early, which clearly you were. Where'd you go from there? Because it didn't stop there, right? There was more. There was more. Yeah. Continued on. Keep going. It's <laughs> sure. all good. Thank you. Yeah, no, I think, look, there was another period. I, I remember this moment vividly when I was six years old. I was laying in my bed and I was sort of, you know, thinking about 
the world and kind of what was going on in my and I was in this beautiful big house and my best friend was living out back in a much simpler accommodations that we actually that you know we had for the people who helped us at the house and I remember thinking why am I in this bed and he's out there and it just seemed completely random to me that I had sort of been plopped by some greater power into this bed with so much privilege when he had been plopped out there. And that thought uh, has really been core to who I become as a person. I, I, you know, obviously many of us find our own roots to empathy, but that has never left me. And it's been very profound that, you know, there's a lot of randomness in where we end up in the world. And we all have to be grateful and appreciative and also, you know, respect where other people come from because remarkable things happen to people from all kinds of backgrounds. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm curious because I know that, you know, there's a lot of work around training diplomats, kids and diplomats and cells, people are working in the service sector around, you know, the civil service in trying to understand cultural sort of etiquette and how to engage in sort of a mixed environment like that. When you're that young, do they actually provide you training or it's all just ad hoc and hoping that your parents will, you know, raise you properly? Well, to be frank, in that era, I don't think people were doing a lot of that yet other than, uh, you know, so it was just people who were savvy enough to figure it out for themselves. Um, And my parents certainly were. But yeah, no, I think it it certainly it's an incredibly important skill to learn how to, to, to listen to people properly. And I think Thankfully, you know, the world has woken up to the importance of actually training people to do that right in, in a thoughtful and consistent way. But this was really prior to that. I mean, I'll tell you, frankly, we were somewhat the opposite. We were kids, right? So, I mean, as when I was in my full-on kid mode and not sort of thinking profoundly about how I dropped out of the universe, we were, you know, I thought of India as like the funnest place in the world to be because of two big things. Diwali, which is basically three months of fireworks, uh, which is a national holiday in India, one of their biggest celebrations of the year. But it's, you know, you could go to the market and buy all the fireworks you wanted. And we exploded them in every way you can imagine. And then Holi, which is the festival of spring, which is basically a three-week water balloon fight. You know, you get get out there. They had these massive, like, you know, you imagine an oversized syringe, like three feet long made of brass. You would dip it into a bucket full of colored water and then shoot it all over everybody or you could huck a balloon at anybody that you ran into and it was everybody was all happy to be hit and you came home basically <laughs> you'd go out in your worst clothes and come home brown but it was so fun and so that was a lot of the the joy of being a kid so I don't know that it was terribly sensitive other than uh, I did I do actually remember and Diwali continues to be one of my favorite holidays uh, holiday events period there's nothing as magical, frankly, as I've seen, as when you go around a city on the on the evening before Diwali, and and all the roofs are lined with oil lanterns, so these wonderful lines of of real, you know, fire uh, all over the roofs of all the homes. It was just gorgeous, and um, it's such a special holiday. Yeah, sounds amazing, and I've definitely India has been high on my bucket list, and haven't quite made it there yet, but I will <laughs> indeed for sure. So I want to move on to another different phase, which was your parents continued to do their work in various different countries. And then you went to boarding school, which I think is a very typical scenario for diplomats, kids. How did yeah. you think that that, you know, what are your memories of how that shaped the way that you engaged with other kids coming into, and if I remember it correctly, you went to boarding school in the US. Did yeah. You, yeah. So you were coming from living abroad to coming to the U.S. and and sort of, you know, to be a normal kid at boarding school. 
do you have some memories there of sort of the repatriation experience as a kid? And, you know, yeah, how is do that I? framed you? Um, do I? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, it was it was a bit of shock. To have a little context, you know, this was India in the in the early 70s. You know, we all grew our hair long. We were like little mini hippies running around, you know, experimenting with everything. I loved I was into being kind of we were all into being in India and being, frankly, Indian. We were, you know, we were, uh, you know, kurtas and, you know, in pajama pants and, you know, and we hung out at chai stalls and drank tea with everybody. And, you know, it was just it was, and I was I had like some really cool friends and we were all into exploring the country. I came from that mindset to being sent to a, a, a school for boys outside Boston that shall perhaps go unnamed. And I was plunked into a, a double room with a guy named Van Clegg, who came from Nashville, Tennessee, and was the center on the football team. So he was about twice my size. And uh, he just did not know what to do with me. I mean, literally, he, I, he sort of talked to me for a half an hour and then sort of grunted. And then, then, and then he went out and talked to some friends and he came back and, they all, and he decided that I was the funniest thing ever. But he was not only going to just think of me as funny, but he was going to like physically attack me. So I literally was like beaten uh, by this guy. Uh, It got so bad that they actually had to separate us because, you know, so they actually put me into the the one remaining dorm space in this old school dormitory that had curtains, you know, for doors and a big open space. But and it was right next to the, you know, the, the bathroom. So I literally was woken up every time somebody, you know, had to go at night and so on. So it was it was somewhat nightmarish. I did find some ways. I you know, buried myself in my schoolwork and found a few teachers that took pity on me uh, and uh, and so on. But it was not an easy transition. Um, you know, the shift from from this sort of wonderful exploratory life as the youngest of, of five siblings, who you know, so a lot of older people, to, older siblings to learn from, to this uh, was tough. I'll be very frank; it was tough. Uh, that was, but it was only for one year at that school, and then I went to one that was. Uh, up in New Hampshire that was better. And so things started to improve after that. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank goodness for transitions. I bet you appreciated the new school much better after that experience. I did. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. But I think that's a really common experience. I mean, that's sort of an extreme, of course. But I think it's a very common experience for our kids when they return to whatever home is. For some of them, they don't even identify it as home because they maybe never even lived there. You know, I mean, when we repatriated to the U.S., our kids had been living overseas in, you know, pretty strong formative years. Some, yeah. you know, our son had been, he turned five in Sweden and was there until he was 12. So when he came back, he was like, what is this place? You know, and he spent summers yeah. visiting and whatnot, but he identifies much more as a Swede. Whereas our daughter was much younger when we moved back to the U.S. So for her, she sort of just embraced being a California girl. And I think that there's, you know, that transition, it really depends on your age when you make that shift, which can be really challenging. So I'm, I'm sorry you got beat up, but I, I hope it turned out better in the <laughs> no, long run. Thank you. I, I appreciate that. I mean, I, I did survive. It was a bit tough at times, but no, but you know, it's interesting because my parents saw this a lot, obviously they have, they're, you know, m- many of their friends and, and peers were raising children abroad. And the, the reality is, is that in their cohort, the kids who stayed on and went all the way through high school, you know, in while moving around, continuing to move around in mostly developing countries, actually, most of them had a really tough time. Mm. Uh, a lot of the kids who stayed out there because it was there's in that, at least in that era, 
there was so much, there were so many, frankly, drugs available and, uh, and other distractions that a lot of kids went down a pretty rough path. So by and large, even though what I, you know, the transition I went through going back to boarding school was hard, you know, I ended up fine. You know, I, I figured it out by the time I got through high school, there was a discipline, disciplinary structure around me. I didn't go, go nuts. Some other kids who stayed abroad, I certainly know of that had a rougher time. And so you, you do have to, it can be very hard to manage a safe childhood uh, in some of these um, more dynamic markets. Yeah, for sure. And then you moved on to doing some really cool stuff. I'll let you talk about it a little bit, but I love the fact that you studied rhetoric. That's one of those things that like most people don't even know what that <laughs> is, right? And when I first met my husband, who you know quite well, uh, the fir- one of the first things he said to me, because I was had just finished my MBA and said, I'm going to do a PhD. And he said, I want to study rhetoric someday. And I was like, really? And then, of course, we meet you and I'm like, oh, That's yeah, funny. you studied rhetoric at UC Berkeley. I'm like, okay, no wonder these two get along so well. So tell me a little bit more about that path and sort of how your previous experiences maybe sort of not dictated, but contributed to your decision for your path in your more advanced studies. Sure. Thank you. So the one thing I came up with, you know, always we have our theories and I had a theory pretty early on and it sort of grew on me as I was going through St. Paul's and becoming worried about, you know, being another like, you know, preppy kid doing, you know, doing St. Paul's to some Ivy League school. I, you know, I I came up with this idea that look, I'm going to be a much fuller person if my life is filled with opposites. If I do things that are very different. So, first of all, when I when I came, I didn't when I came out of this boarding school in New England, I the last thing I wanted to do was like go to Harvard or something like that, like, you know, a lot of my family had and and just become another like preppy guy doing that. So, first thing I did is I said, "Dad, I want to take a year off." And I want to work and do something completely different. So I, I had, I figured out the opportunity to go work on a derrick barge in the Gulf of Mexico. It was like a 350 foot by 100 foot wide barge. Its job was to basically set up oil rigs and then transition them from drilling to production. So this was working with a bunch of you know hard bitten dudes out there. You're you're working 12 hours a day, two weeks on. So 12 hours a day, seven days a week for two weeks, and then you got a full week off. And it was actually, it was a fantastic experience and it was tough and it was dangerous. We almost all died, which changed it because we literally got caught in a hurricane and we're being swept through the middle of a big oil production area where we couldn't put down anchors for fear of breaking a pipe and blowing the whole area up because these were full of gas. But, you know, we actually did hook onto it. We did drop anchors and managed to survive anyway, but it was a close call, literally. So that changed my view of all the people around me to you know, these are people I'm having an a quote unquote experience with to people that I might might be the last people I see. Um, so it changed friendships very materially. But that was, you know, that was a great experience. So when it came to choosing a college, likewise, I decided I did not want to do the sort of the Ivy League, even if, you know, kind of thing. I wanted to, you know, get out of there. So I went to Berkeley and, you know, far away and sort of somewhat of an unusual choice, at least in the, at the time. And there, yes, I studied rhetoric. And to this day, it cracks me up whenever I walk by the Department of Rhetoric, you know, sign on the door. It's just a funny thing to have studied. But my theory there, and I had another one, was that as an undergrad, the most useful thing you can do is really go deep into thinking critically and expressing yourself. And rhetoric is a fantastic way to do that because it focuses very specifically on how you move an audience and what works to change somebody's mind. And it's frankly, uh, it, so it's a really interesting way to look at communication and, the, and a way to look at literature and a way to look at constitutional history or any number of other topics. It's an angle. 
uh, but it's very analytical. It's very clear. And you can really see what's really making people change their view. How are you moving an audience? It's, and, and so it's useful throughout life. Obviously, I do this to this day when I help sell company stories and things of that sort. Yeah, I mean, it's such a cool topic. And it, it's something that, you know, I, I, I maybe it's just the name of the word rhetoric. It just makes me th- feel like it's something from Monty Python. But I, I don't know why it has sort of this connotation. Where, you know, it's like the Department of Rhetoric, we're going to just sit here and argue, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And that's what cracks me up. It is funny. Yeah. Yeah. And then you moved on from there, and you've done a lot of really, and we won't don't need to go into so much of your education. But it's one of the I think what is really interesting to me is that clearly your experiences and your you know in your youth really formulated sort of where you chose to do sort of your research and your studies and eventually your work. And that's really, I mean, I met you initially through cousin mutual friend who was very involved in working in China for years, and you guys met there. And, you know, that's not really a a typical choice of like, oh, I'm going to go off to China, and I'm going to do work in China and India, especially for an American, a preppy American, but you obviously (laughs) chose to go against that. So uh, tell me a little bit how sort of that process led you in that path, because I think, you know, you obviously had, you know, some sort of attachment to those areas, to the, to the Far East. And, uh, you know, how did, how did that work for you? Yeah. So the brief narrative is that after I had finished college, I decided to take a year and I bought one of those around the world airplane tickets. I think it was $2,600. I had taken a couple of jobs fixing up somebody's home, which I did a very bad job on, but they still were kind enough to pay me. And uh, so I, and then I went off and I, I traveled around the world for about nine months. And I spent about two months of that trooping around in India, which was incredible. You know, there's a lot of stories to be told. I mean, one of the highlights was hiking across the great Himalaya, just me and two guides that one of them had hidden a, a hookah in every, in caves all along the way. And at one point we had to like go into kind of military posture to avoid some crazy guy who lived up in the hills and was known for attacking adjacent hikers. So I mean, all, and you know, it was just beautiful, spectacular, incredible journey. And then, but also, I ended up spending about a month and a half in China, and I th- I didn't speak any Chinese at the time. And I remember, you know, also there being in the, you know, in Guilin, which is people will know is a kind of a popular tourist destination. There were these beautiful hills that shoot straight up out of the ground, formed by limestone, and trying to find my way back to, you know, the airline office or something and just nobody understood what I was saying. And so I was like, oh my God, this country is so amazing, first of all, because it just it just reeked opportunity. And uh, and just it was it, this incredible waking up after a long period of some darkness under communism, still there, but um, but it was still going into a, a really interesting phase. And so I, I came back and I said, man, I'm going to learn this language. And I want to I want to study China and I wanted to study China and India. So I ended up getting lucky and getting into a fantastic uh, graduate program, first at Johns Hopkins, and then going on and going even deeper into it at Harvard, where I worked on a PhD. And I wrote about corruption in India and China, which was, uh, you know, I, I frankly never been more entertaining at cocktail parties because I always had a lot of good uh, stories to tell about crazy things that people had gotten into. But it was a fascinating journey and, uh, and, and led me to a, you know, a fulsome career focused long term on, uh, on working with companies in China and India. And you're still doing that today. And, and obviously, I mean, the work that you're doing now is not necessarily uh, looking specifically at corruption. Hopefully, it's looking at the opposite side of that <laughs> and the opportunities that maybe are have arisen out of sort of the remains from that. But I think 
it's, I mean, it, it's always been really interesting to me when you're hearing expat stories or people who have had a significant amount of time overseas and they come back, what are the pieces that they really, you know, what are the lessons that they learn? What are the things that they apply to the other areas of their lives? And, and you have done some really interesting work with investing in companies that are on a global scale. And a lot of people don't necessarily have a full understanding of what that means. And, you know, the, from the culture, from the language, from all of these different viewpoints. And I think that it's really interesting to sort of think, where do you think your biggest learning points have been in terms of your international experience prior to applying it to business, but your international experience, whether it was your traveling or whether it was as a young kid that have really you know, had the most impact on the work that you do now with looking at global companies and trying to and really understanding the best ones to invest in. You know, it really yeah, comes down to advice. To yeah. yeah. So I think the, you know, the probably the deepest lesson and the one that's guided much of my career is that innovation can happen anywhere and it's very contextual to the ecosystem in which it operates. And that because each ecosystem is a little different, the kinds of innovation you can find in each place can be different. And the other, I guess, in addition, that big continental-sized markets like China and India create their own types of innovation in very profound and interesting ways and you know, have, enough, have sufficient resources oftentimes to have that uh, innovation be very meaningful. So, you know, that's really been what I've loved so much is, you know, it, it, corruption is kind of like you have to go in it almost with a bit of a cynic's hat. You're looking for people misbehaving and, and essentially you're trying to understand, you know, what are the what are the structural conditions that make people behave badly in tech? You're looking at almost the opposite. It's you're sort of what are the structural conditions that allow really exciting things to happen in the world that can be transformative to populations. And so that's been super fun. I'm an optimistic guy, and I, <laughs> I, I prefer to focus on the upside than the downside. And so it's been an incredible journey. Uh, you know, so I was very early in China. Uh, you know, I went out there, and and frankly, I, I, I wanted to go back and work in China more than anything else. And I didn't really know anything about investment banking or investing. And uh, so I, but I ran into this guy who was all psyched about China, and he said, "You, you know, I told I sort of wore the skeptic's hat of a of a guy just coming out of several years of studying corruption, and you know, guys on Wall Street like skeptics." So he said, "You're the guy. Let's, uh, you know, let's send you to China." So I went out there, but it was really early. I mean, there was the tech community was just getting started. There was an enormous amount of energy, you know, but it was really early. It was very much, you know, sort of frontier capitalism, I would almost say. And it, you know, it, it took a while to get things going, and there was a learning curve through all that. And the other interesting thing from that is that, you know, at the time, at least, and this is still to a large degree the case, people in the United States are, you know, were, and I think to a large degree still are, remarkably United States centric. People really get very inwardly focused and they don't, they don't often take the time to really understand, many people don't, some do, but many don't, to understand what's happening uh, all over the world. And it was incredible to see the energy and the and you could just feel, I mean, late developers have all kinds of advantage. Any good economist will tell you that. They can grow faster just by the structural nature of where they're coming from. But in China, the rate of innovation was extraordinary. It brought all kinds of funny side effects and because, uh, you know, we were in cities that were literally getting torn down and rebuilt in front of our eyes, which was not always the most fun. But it was a super fun journey to be part of that early on. And, you know, and same in India. I'll, and I'm happy to tell you more stories if you're interested. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that that's what sort of when you're there at sort of a transition and a flexion point, there's so much to be learned from it and so much value you can provide by giving that context of, you know, usually at that flexion point, they're either deciding, do we go internal or do do we go external? Are we going to grow big or are we going to just try to you know, figure out how to thrive in our existing environment. And you seem to have hit that sweet spot of trying to, of understanding that bridge, probably with the help of, you know, speaking Mandarin and speaking, do you speak Hindi? Some Hindi, yeah, yeah but so, not as well as my yeah. Chinese, yeah. So, <laughs> so anyway, but, but enough to be able to have a conversation to, to be able to build that trust, which is obviously quite critical when you're dealing with these things. And, and do you find that your, background has enabled you to build a better trust to to really work within that environment more fluidly? Well, that's a really interesting and sort of deep question, actually, because it somewhat depends on the level of trust in the society you're operating in. And I would say I would actually draw a pretty stark distinction between China and India. China is a country that while, you know, wonderful people, many dear friends, you know, incredibly energetic, the nature of the government there is not one that builds trust easily. So trust, because there's a lot of, you know, a lot of complexity around that question, shall we say. And so there, I honestly would say that I felt the appearance of trust uh, more often than I felt the long-term reality of trust, um, even though, you know, despite my best efforts. Uh, so, I mean, we got things done, but in the end, I think, I, I did come away feeling that more of the relationships than I would have liked ended up feeling more transactional than based on a deeper caring, shall we say. Mm-hmm. So, but that's, I don't think that's any individual's fault. I think that's the, a, a very much a result of the world in which they've had to operate uh, many, many people. And, you know, and I hope uh, over, you know, that I think there's a core of wonderful, wonderful people. So, but it's very, you know, it's a challenging environment for people. Do you in feel India, that shifting? Think, yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say in India, a little bit different. I would say, you know, although, yeah, obviously many challenges too, but I found, I found it somewhat easier to build those long-term trusted relationships. And, and uh, I think it's, you know, again, probably contingent of the structure of the society at large as much as anything. And do you feel like that has been shifting at all in recent years or is it maybe even less trusting? I don't know. I mean- is there, I think. Yeah, you know, I mean, I'd honestly say it probably, if I felt there was sort of a trend, a positive trend when I was there, it was a very hopeful time. I mean, we were there, you know, through, well, into the, into the, into this millennium, shall we say, into the early 2000s. And, um, uh, and I think there was a lot of engagement and a lot of really incredible entrepreneurs going back and forth, brilliant people coming to study in the United States, coming back all excited, building great companies, you know, the Baidus and Alibaba's of the world and amazing entrepreneurs. Um, and that was, and, and, you know, if you look at sort of entrepreneurial success, China is off the charts amazing. You know, the, the quality of the companies. One of my friends used to say, look, the reason why Chinese companies are so successful is because people have this willingness to accept uh, you know, a, a, a direction that a boss can give, you know, it's sort of a company that's had a history of strong leadership, shall we say. And, uh, uh, and people will just charge ahead and work like hell to get a, you know, get a project done and build a new type of software or hardware. And then if somebody has to change it, they'll redirect and just go march off in that direction. And so the rate of innovation, the, the rate of growth of these companies was incredible. So to be around that, I mean, I, I, in the end, I got to work with companies like Alibaba and 
you know, 58.com and, you know, you may not know these others, YY and on and on. These are incredible companies uh, that were just really, really well led and very interesting to observe. India, on the other hand, I mean, it everything took a little longer. There's like it's more of a debating society. There's like, you know, not it was not you don't necessarily, at least early on, see that incredible dynamism in the early days. There's a lot of stuff to sort through. But I think that is now, you know, changing dramatically there. And you're and you're seeing, as I've written recently, this incredible rise of certain categories of software companies uh, and other things. But it's been a fascinating journey to watch. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, it's been fun to to read your articles as well. I need to make sure I get some links on those so, we, so folks can read them um, if they want to dig a little bit deeper on that. I'm curious uh, because you have two sons, and um, but they have never lived overseas. Is that correct? Not lived. We've, you know, that was something that frankly, you know, it was, it was tough because, you know, so my wife, Pam and I, um, you know, we view ourselves at the core as adventurers. Uh, and we, you know, we loved, um, you know, the adventure of being overseas. And I'll, I'll tell you the friendships that we made uh, while living abroad are treasured and some just incredible people. I mean, people who, te- you know, I think it's as, you know, as, as a global nomad yourself, I think you'll, um, you know, you know, that the kind of, that, that sort of that lifestyle attracts interesting people, let's face it, and people who are willing to take risks and, and get out there. So you just meet these extraordinary people. And so that many of our deepest friendships um, have, have come out of that. And so we really wanted our children to have that kind of uh, an experience as well. Um, but, you know, and we had a few close calls, but, you know, things have to line up on multiple fronts and the window is where it was and it didn't quite happen. Um, you know, I am very gratified that uh, my older son, at least, has um, decided that international relations is is his passion, um, and that's what he plans to uh, to study. And he he had an we did get to send him to to France, um, where I know you guys also spend time, um, and he loved it. And now he's going to be going to university in Scotland, which I think will be a great adventure for him. So, at least we created enough interest in uh, in things international that he's pursuing it to some some degree in his studies. I think that's so awesome. I didn't realize he was going to Scotland. So I'm so excited for him. I think that's going to be a great experience. And, and uh, I think, you know, it is a challenge, you know, we want to be able to expose our kids to the world and to what it's what it is like to be a global citizen, how to be a good global citizen. And I think, despite the fact that they you haven't lived abroad with them yet. You have, you bring, you invite so much of the different cultures that you have experienced together into your home, into the way that you live your lives. Those kids are very international, nevertheless. I think it's just how do we ultimately um, introduce a curiosity and a passion for seeing uh, things outside of what is, you know, sort of in front of our faces and uh, the cultures yeah. and the languages and the people and the and and just having different perspectives is so incredibly important. So I think you've done a beautiful job. They're great kids. And, and um, you know, I, I always enjoy visiting with you and Pam because there's always some kind of an international twist to whatever we do when we get together. Um, and, and that just, you know, it's, for me, it's, it brings in a sense of joy and adventure. And, and that, you know, comes through yeah. so clearly for you guys. So, well, we both are adventurers, and uh, you know, for many for many years, uh, you know, we have uh, 
you know, as we move back here, many other people who had similar uh, international experiences have ended up in the, in the San Francisco Bay Area where we live uh, as well. And so we have regular gatherings and it's a wonderful and interesting group of people and people are going back and forth. To, you know, we all travel a lot. I mean, when I was at, at the peak of all this, this is obviously not true in COVID, I was literally in China or India or or Brazil or Israel, you know, a week a month sort of thing. So, or, or even more. So just, although based here, which is kind of not a bad gig, you know, to be able to have that and then, you know, sort of going on these explorations every week was so fun. And I, and I hope that uh, the kids, you know, I'd come back with stories and little gifts and our house is full of things international. So, you know, it was definitely, uh, they were definitely exposed to a lot and, uh, and a lot of friends, obviously that we have give them that exposure, but not the same as, uh, you know, as, as walking out your door and having a Viper drop in front of you, um, you know, off your garage. This is what happened to me when I was, you know, eight years old in, uh, in India and made for a little excitement as a kid. No, oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, and at least I didn't have to get beat up at boarding school either. <laughs> so. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Of course. Anyway, I'm afraid oh. we've run out of time, but this has been so much fun. And thank you so much for sharing your story. And I think it's always great for us to have a chance to sort of revisit sort of what are the things that we extract from our experiences? How do we apply those different perspectives in into our lives and into our work? And there's so many great opportunities when we do travel to really experience the world in different ways. And what do we bring home with us and apply as we move forward? So I just, I, I hope you enjoyed our interview today with Brewer and, and that, uh, you maybe can take something and uh, and apply it to your own life or the way that you explore the world a little bit differently. And, you know, don't be afraid to take some of those great leaps and opportunities to experience the world in a different light. And thank you, Brewer, for joining us. What fun. Thank you so much, Heidi. It was wonderful. And to everybody, you know, keep your learning curve steep and your, your mind open. It's a wonderful world out there. Thank you so much. Fabulous. Thank you. And thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed today's show. And if you did, don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And if you haven't already, we always appreciate a rating and review. And please let us know so we can send a little love back. It's been a great time with you today and my honor and my pleasure. And I appreciate you all. Look forward to next time. Bye bye for now.